so we we have to come up with solutions now we have to strategize now that how do we want to take the early relief and the reconstruction part because if we rebuild the same houses in the same flood plains this disaster is going to happen again hello and welcome to the audit a podcast dedicated to examining the contours of the US Pakistan relationship bringing listeners insights from experts decision makers and stakeholders who have been involved in the long history of these bilateral ties my name is Zeeshan Salahuddin and i'm hosting today's episode with my colleague Adam Weinstein the voice that you just heard was of lieutenant general Nadeem Ahmed he was the former head of Pakistan's National Disaster Management Authority or NDMA and the person who was in charge of relief and rehabilitation efforts following the devastating 2010 floods in Pakistan up until this point we thought those were the worst floods in the country's history we'll be hearing more from him later in this special episode special because it addresses the very current and very urgent climate emergency that Pakistan is now facing These monsoon floods that have been the worst that we've seen in decades since June of this year have affected approximately 33 million people which accounts for nearly 14% of Pakistan's 234 million population. 2/3 of the country is underwater. There have been 1500 deaths, nearly 2 million homes that have been partially or fully destroyed, and the scale of damage to livestock and crops will sort of continue to reveal itself throughout the year. This has also of course long term implications for food security exports and imports and the current account deficit more recently our prime minister mr shahbaz sharif stated at the united nations general assembly that no words can describe the shock we are living through or how the face of the country lies transformed back in 2010 when the us presence was at its peak next door in afghanistan there was quite a bit of monetary and logistical support that came in from the us when the 2010 floods happened today adam and i will dive into the history of us emergency assistance to pakistan and try to understand how the shifts in the us pak relationship especially perhaps within the last year are likely to impact the kind of support that pakistan can expect now and in the future as the whole world especially pakistan grapples with the realities of climate change As one of the country's most important bilateral partners, the United States has been a source of humanitarian assistance for Pakistan in the past. The financial relationship between the two countries has of course been shaped by strategic and political interests. The audit has explored the nature and scope of US-Pakistan financial ties in previous episodes, so you should check those out. But the conversation around what the obligations of the United States and other global north countries should be is shifting in the context of climate change. Pakistan contributes less than 1% of global carbon emissions but is among the 10 most vulnerable countries to the impacts of climate change. This isn't the first time Pakistan is seeing mass scale devastation in the wake of a natural disaster and it assuredly won't be the last. However, to better understand the needs of the present, let's go back for a moment to 2010 when the US military was in Pakistan to facilitate relief efforts. I spoke to Lieutenant General Michael Nagata who helped coordinate US rescue operations at the time. I got there in uh 2009 and I stayed till almost the end of 2012. So I was there for about just short of 3 years. Um I was the military deputy there, but most importantly my position you probably know I'm a career special forces officer. I was sent to uh the office of the defense representative there in Pakistan. uh to assist in creating cooperation 
between the Pakistan military on the eastern side of the border with Afghanistan and ISAF on the western side of the border in uh, to try to conduct coordinated operations against the Taliban uh, along the Duran line. Of course. And do you think the fact that we at that time still felt we needed the help of the Pakistanis to defeat the Afghan Taliban and rein in the Pakistani Taliban had an impact on the way we responded to disaster relief in 2010? It had a significant, although unplanned and unintended effect. When the 2010 flood occurred, there were significant U.S. military assets in the region that could quickly be provided to support the Pakistan military in the early days of their relief operations. We received uh, within just a few days, for example, at the time General Petraeus was the ISAF commander in Afghanistan, he dispatched uh, about a company's worth of U.S. Army helicopters immediately to Pakistan. And we began relief operations up and down the Swat Valley with those helicopters within just a few days of the Pakistanis asking for help. Yeah, and I actually remember seeing a picture of you um, at, at one point. There's a picture of you addressing U.S. Marines in Pakistan. I think they were um, they were pilots and air crew, and they were actually going right. to the Ghazi Air Base in Haripur, uh, Haripur in yeah. Khyber Pashtun. The- yeah, the, the the U.S. military assistant came in waves. The very first ones to arrive were that aviation company coming out of Afghanistan. It was a U.S. Army uh, uh, helicopter company. Um, the second thing to arrive was um, a, a small squadron of Navy helicopters to help us begin relief operations down in Baluchistan, further down the Indus River Valley. Uh, And then the third thing to arrive was an entire battalion of U.S. Army helicopters that we based up in the north that did the did the preponderance of our relief operations up and down the Swat Valley. It took several weeks for that helicopter battalion to arrive. But the initial army company to support the Swat Valley and the initial small Navy element to begin operations in Baluchistan, that happened relatively quickly. But all of that happened because we had we had substantial U.S. military assets in the region already because of the campaign in Afghanistan. And these were assets that were in Af- primarily in Afghanistan or also assets that were in Pakistan? Well, the, that initial company that came in that General Petraeus very swiftly detached, they were taken out of combat to provide immediate relief support uh, under our command and control, under the U.S. Embassy's command and control uh, up in the north. Uh, I was the commander of the element up in the north, uh, so I, I I was essentially a task force commander up there with a few Army helicopters that had been pulled out of combat to do the first few days of relief operations. The Navy element came off of naval assets in the Indian Ocean. Um, My assumption is they were supporting operations in Afghanistan at the time, but I never asked that question. I was just glad to get additional helicopters. Uh, And they were, as I said, they were based further down in the the Sindh and Baluchistan, helping operations down there. The aviation battalion that took several weeks to arrive, they were not in Afghanistan, they were in Alaska. They They were deployed out of Alaska directly to Pakistan, and they ended up forming the largest task force we had that conducted operations up and down the Squat River Valley. When I hear about this now, it just seems so unimaginable. Uh, When you look at the state of U.S.-Pakistan relations today, 
what was the reception by the Pakistani military and this and the state uh, to this help? Both civilian and military leaders were incredibly grateful, and they they allowed us to establish substantial logistical bases, substantial aviation, air traffic control coordination capabilities. Um, we basically got what we're given carte blanche. We could do anything we wanted, anywhere we wanted, so long as it was to support the relief operations, because rather obviously, just as is true today, the Pakistanis were in crisis at that time. We, we maintained account just for our helicopter operations in the Swat River Valley. We, man, we maintained account of how many people we were pulling out of the floodplain. We, we operated there for about 90 days before we stopped operations up there because the Pakistanis finally, the, the problem had subsided to the point that Pakistani capacity could deal with what remained. In that 90 days, we lifted about 40,000 people out of the floodplain just with helicopters. The size of this catastrophe back in 2010 was hard to wrap your head around, and they're going through it again. General Nagara's retelling has quite a bit of context that we need to examine and sort of understand. This direct flood relief provided by the United States and the $70 million pledged did not occur in a vacuum. The U.S. presence and operations in neighboring Afghanistan were in full swing, and Washington obviously wanted to improve its relationship with Pakistan. Pakistan was also a frontline ally in the war on terror, and the floods had dramatically altered internal priorities, which would inevitably affect external priorities. At the time, Ambassador Robin Rafael was in Pakistan to help coordinate that aid. That's exactly right. Um, I was brought in primarily to coordinate the rapid increase in economic aid through the Kerry Luger Berman legislation um, in 2009. The idea was at the time to match on the civilian side what we had been doing on the military side and, and to answer the criticism that the U.S. was only concerned about security issues and not about the people of Pakistan. So the, the effort was to become more deeply involved in the economic side. And as you know, the Kerry Luger Berman um, legislation authorized up to $1.5 billion a year in economic assistance. And that was a considerable plus up. And the authorization was over five years. So had we been able to program and spend all that money, it would have been $7.5 billion. So at the time, it seemed like a big deal. The Kerry Luger Berman Act meant that there were already funds earmarked for Pakistan. It authorized the release of $1.5 billion annually between 2010 and 2014 to Pakistan as non-military aid. What was good about having that legislation and having by that time had a certain amount of funding appropriated, you know, for various other programs is that we had funds that we could reprogram to be responsive to the flood. And we spent a lot of time doing that. It doesn't happen with the flip of a switch. You know, there's a lot of paperwork involved in reprogramming, but at least we had appropriated funds that we could reprogram to help with flood relief. Ambassador Cameron Munter, who became ambassador to Pakistan in October 2010, arrived during the floods and recalls his first few days in the country and how the relief assistance from the United States was a real attempt on Washington's part at improving the relationship between the two countries. Uh, I actually arrived during the floods. That is to say, 
Uh, it was in October. And uh, in fact, one of the first things I did when I was there was to go to Northern Sint uh, with a delivery of, uh, of food for people in that area on a Chinook helicopter. I think it's clear that 2022 is worse than 2010, but that was very serious back in 2010. And at that time, the relationship between the United States and Pakistan, we were still uh, struggling to try to build a more comprehensive and a better relationship. Sadly, I think because of the decline in the relationship, uh, the distancing of the relationship, you don't see the American military, the American National Guard with its helicopters helping. And I'm sorry, I'm sorry that's the case. This time around, the United States initially pledged 30 million US dollars, and to date that number has risen, but the response has been slower and smaller than in 2010. US troops are no longer stationed next door in Afghanistan, and they aren't being deployed to Pakistan for flood relief. A small US military team did travel to Pakistan to make an assessment of the relief effort, and US military planes have delivered aid. US Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee and Congressman Tom Suozzi also traveled to Pakistan for the same purpose, as did officials from the Biden administration, including US aid administrator Samantha Power. They all expressed shock at the extent of the devastation they witnessed. But aside from the obvious difference in proximity, what else has changed in US Pakistan relations that could explain the diminished response? Huma Bakai, an international relations expert and associate professor of social sciences at IBA in Karachi, believes there are greater geopolitical shifts at work. There's a realignment of our relationship with the U.S. Uh, and this realignment has also impacted our trade relations and our relations with the financial institutions. So I'm not saying that U.S. is not willing to help us, but I'm also saying that U.S. is now not willing to be the only one that helps states out in times of crisis. Uh, they are overstretched in terms of aid. They're thinking about nitrization of Europe. So uh, AIDS uh, will dry up. And uh, they announce a figure and then they back off from there. And you see, whether it's US or whether it's any other state, there's a problem here. And the problem is in distribution. The problem is in the attitude of our policymakers. We don't come across as very conscientious policymakers who care for their people. We all, you're constantly on the social media these days, you hear about the Angelina Jolie episode and the report that she presented, the very negative report that she presented to the United Nations uh, after the, she was here for the 2010 floods. So that is a baggage we carry. And that is why you also see, which I probably am constantly observing, that uh, countries are giving us material aid. Very few countries are committing to financial aid, financial inputs. The rising uh, confrontation and tensions between China and the United States don't paint a very, very nice picture here. Uh, they have actually withdrawn themselves. Initially, Trump withdrew from all the climate uh, treaties, made jokes on, on, on the climate issue. Uh, and then later on, of course, Biden did dealt damage control. But the kind of collaborative models you need to address uh, what I call the issues of uh, global commons or global goods is, is, is now compromised because we are heading towards what we call the new Cold War, the camp politics, and the three, and in a multipolar world where Europe, US, 
perhaps Russia and China need to come together to find a collaborative model to address these issues, whether regionally or globally. They they all stand compromised. China actually withdrew from uh, from an arrangement with the United States on climate post Taiwan uh, issue surfaced. So, uh, like I said, I see the situation as grim, despite the fact that the red flags about climate are being raised by everyone. The compromises that you need, the the end of capitalist greed, uh, I don't see that. Many in Pakistan and across much of the rest of the developing world are increasingly seeing standard forms of aid and assistance which of course is also tied to political and geostrategic interests, as an unsustainable response to climate change, and one that overlooks both the vulnerability of countries like Pakistan and the culpability that the global north has when it comes to the impacts of climate change. The relief response seems now like a trickle in the face of the scale and scope of the floods, despite the many efforts put in. To put it in perspective, the $56.5 million pledged by the U.S., as Adam mentioned earlier, are but a drop in the bucket for the estimated 30 billion needed to tackle the devastation caused by the floods. The Pakistani Prime Minister, Mr. Shabazz Sharif, addressed the United Nations General Assembly outlining these facts and pushing for greater accountability. A call to, quote, pause from the preoccupations of the 20th century to return to the challenges of the 21st. The fact of the matter is that these knee-jerk initial aid responses, especially in a world that is experiencing global relief fatigue, are woefully inadequate, especially for countries like Pakistan. This is, of course, with the cognizance that Pakistan internally also needs to prioritize climate change as a major existential threat, as well as better coordinate climate financing to be put in the hands of those trying to affect real and tangible and demonstrable change. At the Climate Resource and Coordination Cell, we spoke to Kashmala Kakakhel, a climate finance specialist about Pakistan's case for loss and damage and what the country needs to do to ensure long-term sustainability in the face of climate change. There's a lot of uh, hype around repatriation and the fact that Pakistan is not, um, has, does not contribute to the impacts of climate change. 0.2% uh, is what we contribute to the emissions, but at the same time, uh, we are one of the 10 most vulnerable countries and therefore there needs to be, we need to be compensated. That that's fine. The, the script seems very fine when you're looking at it at a national level within your own sphere in Pakistan. But there's a larger conversation that's been happening for the last 40 years at the international level by other countries exactly asking for the same things. How do you become part of a larger collective voice to have a long-term um, solution for the problems that we will keep facing uh, as the magnitude and frequency of these disasters increases. So a bunch of things. One, as I mentioned, there is the UN stream where in you have your climate negotiations. There is a massive push for setting up a loss and damage facility or a fund. You have these countries who have been leading on it. Most vulnerable countries, they call them the, the V20. It's important that Pakistan joins that group, right? It's important that you add weight to the existing conversation, especially when your wounds are so ripe. You are in the right position to actually claim all these things. One, 
Two, there is stuff that's happening outside uh, the UN negotiations. So, for example, again, Vanuatu is um, taking the lead. They're actually championing a campaign where they've gone to the International Court of Justice and they're seeing advisory on, uh, on, on climate change, right? How exactly is it that the International Court of Justice explains to them that when it comes to climate change and there is a damage that one country has caused the other or a group of countries have caused another group of countries, what does the International Court of Justice say in that? So when the, when, when the, while the developed countries are trying to smother the conversation or the connection between loss and damage and compensation, you actually have these countries continuing to fight at the UN level, but actually taking the conversation to the International Court of Justice as well. Like I said, it's a campaign, it's the beginning, countries are gaining momentum, they're seeking um, a, a counsel from the ICGA, they have to respond to it. That will be a separate fight, but it's a fight worth fighting and it's a fight worth Pakistan joining hands with the other countries rather than us thinking that we could actually make an impact should we fight alone on this issue. Because today it's us, tomorrow it will be another developing country and another developing country. Nobody really has the, the bandwidth to listen to the Pakistan floods beyond, say, one week or another on the international mainstream media. Now, balancing the needs of the short term with the requirements of the long term is crucial for Pakistan at this juncture. Lieutenant General Nadeem Emin, who we heard from earlier, and who has been involved in the conceptualization and implementation of Pakistan's disaster response for decades, agrees that an accurate assessment of the loss incurred this year will be critical to plan for the future needs of those affected and the country as a whole. It must also be stated here that these floods are now not a one-off event. They are likely to occur again and with greater force. This is now a persistent problem that will haunt Pakistani policymakers and disaster relief efforts for the short to medium-term future. In an interview for the Tabad Lab Live series, General Nadeem described the range of problems Pakistan is yet to see as a consequence of these floods and the need to account for them. You know, the relief and rescue work is, is just the first part of it. We must also understand the impacts. Uh, there will be food shortages. There will be spread of disease like cholera, like entritis, gastroenteritis, like malaria. You know, you have to drain out the water. There will be uh, livelihood loss. There will be migration. So the impact is huge. This is the time that we must understand what is going to be the cost of this flood not only in terms of monetary loss, but other losses as well. And start to strategize, ke how do we want to take this forward? 20 million people affected in 2010 and the, cost, the losses were 10.056. And these were not the personal losses, the people who lost their you know, bedding and the savings, whatever they had. It was just the infrastructure loss and the agriculture loss, the livestock loss. This time it is 33 million. It will be much more than that. So, if we don't have our figure right, we will not be able to plan it right. The U.S. officials I spoke with who were involved in the 2010 flood relief recognized Pakistan's need for assistance and the extent of the rehabilitation challenge the country faces. But they seem to have mixed feelings about 2022. They expressed regret that the United States is unable to provide the same robust response to disaster relief that it did in 2010, but they also think the Pakistani state missed opportunities to prepare for future floods after the wreckage of 2010. Ambassador Munter thinks the United States should stand ready to lend a helping hand, 
but can't take the lead. I think what has happened is that Pakistanis have been um, expecting others to come in and to deal with their problems. I mean, one of the things that I always was saying to my Pakistani friends is, your friends in America want you to stand on your own two feet. Your friends in America want you to be a strong, democratic, and a successful country. And it's not a question of who helps you the most. We would love to help you. We don't have the infrastructure to help, and that's a shame. But the main thing is what we would like to see is a Pakistan that's able, when it's faced with these big problems, and believe me, these are huge problems, the climate change problems in Pakistan, that Pakistan is attacking them and dealing with them, and we can help you. Not that we do it, but that we help you. That's what I would like to see. And I hope that Pakistanis, as they try to figure out how their self-government works, will make themselves a strong partner for friends in America. Ambassador Rafael sees the current devastation in Pakistan as the result of global climate change outside of the country's control, combined with poor planning at home. She does think that Pakistan has taken some steps to improve its disaster coordination, but attributes its resilience mostly to the generosity and charity of its own people. Well, I definitely see it as a bit of both. I mean, the whole global south has been talking for some years now about how the emissions which have destroyed the ozone layer or whatever, you know, the main cause of climate change came from the West and the global North. Um, so that's that's not a new narrative. And it's and it's true to a degree. It's, it's absolutely true to a large degree when you compare the, the amount of emissions and so on and so forth. But it is also true um, that Pakistan, particularly in the last few decades. I mean, there was a period when they, you know, they had five-year development plans and they were much more disciplined about uh, development. That has been less so in recent years. And you know, with the changes in government, distractions of Afghanistan, so on and so forth, um, they haven't really forced themselves to focus on, on these um, issues of development priorities and so on and so forth. So to a degree, the fact that they're suffering in the same way from the floods in, in 2022 as they did in 2010 is, is somewhat their responsibility. You know, clearly, Pakistan would have an easier time responding to this crisis if they didn't have the underlying political tensions. I mean, that's just a simple fact. I mean, I will say for Pakistan, from 2005, they developed during the earthquake, the National Disaster Management Agency, which is, is actually quite effective. We worked with them in 2010, a national coordination center run mostly by the military because they're good at logistics, but they have that. They have um, an amazing, as you know, anybody who's worked with Pakistan knows, amazing philanthropic community, both in Pakistan and abroad. You know, people are sending money, sending supplies and so on and so forth. And communities tend to look after one another, clans and broderies and so on and so forth and families. Uh, so there's a, there's a certain amount of resilience there. Many Pakistanis, including General Nadeem, also see a need for better planning and improved disaster response at home. Understand that relief is very fast-paced and it has to be quick. It, it cannot be spread over, you know, like a year or six months. There are people who are marooned, you have to take them out. There are people who are drowning, you have to take them out. There are people who are falling sick, you have to make sure. And by the way, the systems are available. So I think there is 
a requirement for the government and the provincial government especially to sit down and look at it. You know, there is a group of people who are worried about what is to be done right now. What is to be done tomorrow and day after tomorrow, nobody is looking at that. We will have to, you know, upscale our effort in understanding what we are doing and then what are we doing in the long term future. Look at the NDRMF, look at programs like CARE, look at Civil Society Coalition for Climate Change. Make this National Climate Change Act, you know, um, uh, they've just announced the council all right, but we need to put a lot of things together to make it effective. Look at the capacities of the province at the provincial level. Do we need to create a new directorate, climate change and environment? We unless we do all these things, we create coordinating mechanisms. Start looking at the DDMAs. You know, create capacities. Unless we do this, I am afraid these disasters. Climate change is here now. It's not going anywhere, and it's not only the glacial water. 2010 flood, it was riverine floods. This time it was hill torrents plus riverine floods. Next time it will be hill torrents, riverine floods and the glacial melt. This year if you look, we had two extreme heat events. One when the crop was standing. One, second soon, I think two or three weeks later, when the new crop was sown and there were hardly about six inches above the ground. Yeah. So both destroyed yeah. and then came the floods. And I can tell you after some time, there will be droughts. Uh, what we need to do is probably have a national dialogue on this and come up with a set of, and this should be done yesterday, and come up with a set of uh, a strategic contours that how do we want to take it forward. And that has to be done. Without that, we are going to end up in a fiasco. But the state of the climate crisis today means that many experts now view the internal governance conversation as quite separate from the one around loss and damage. Yes, there is a need for better governance internally, and donors should be able to ask for how the money was spent and where. And at the same time, there is a larger, looming accountability question on who and what caused this in the first place, and what reparations need to be made. Concerns about the allocation of aid money, internal corruption, and so on can often serve as distractions from that question of accountability when it comes to the countries contributing to climate change and the countries suffering its impacts. When the international community bases its lack of trust in a developing country like Pakistan based on anecdotal evidence or whatever else, it's very important to explain and clarify that Pakistan is a sovereign state. It has a functioning government. Uh, it has a functioning, vibrant civil society, which questions its own uh, policy makers. We have our own internal issues, but that is of no concern to them. So how the government spends its money, where it goes, we have a vibrant civil society. We have people asking the right questions, and that should not be the international partners. What within the climate change context, again, it's important that the people uh, of these international developed countries should be asking their own governments about the impact of climate change that their emissions are having on our countries. So the debate about accountability and trust uh, should not be uh, relegated to the pennies and the few pounds and the dollars that actually come into the country in the name of aid or whatever you want to call it to see if it's actually spent in the right way. 
because this is not some standard money coming in for health or education or this or that this is much bigger and much different this money is coming into the country because of the uh, the actions of decision makers that sit in rich countries for actions that they cannot be held accountable through the current climate system that we have set up right so first of all it's important to clarify who needs to ask who the trust or accountability question so that's at the international level now when we come to the international the local level the national level let's let's have an open and honest conversation it's not about um just where the money is going right that's just one part of the conversation we need to have which is a retrospective conversation which is money came in did it go to the flood affectees did they get this much per head the or did they actually get the tents did they did not get the tents you know so that's the conversation that you need to have as an immediate relief response conversation and that's perfectly fine the larger question that we all need as as technical people as civil society as uh, media as the private sector and the government as well um you never think through the larger question over here which is really of the governance you will have developed countries push you back on the concept of loss and damage where they will say how can the whole issue around climate change is the attribution of it right is it human induced how much of it is human induced so how much of it is a governance issue and how much of it is actually um climate change issue so the conversation we need to start having at the national level amongst ourselves where we don't need international people telling us what trust is and what trust isn't is not about the money that is currently coming to the country for relief operations but to really sit down and think through our reconstruction as we go forward because these floods didn't this is not the first time we've been seeing this recurring monsoonal floods every other year you will see that one part of the country or another is inundated but sometimes it so happens that 20 30 40 50 percent of the current country is inundated at the same time and that's when not just us at the national level and international people also take notice for a couple of weeks so again going back to your question around accountability the focus really is between us ourselves which is how do we learn from this experience where one flood came certain um, districts responded to it differently and therefore the impact of their loss and damage was much lesser than those who did not adapt to it how do you ensure that similar flood walls and similar um, uh, adaptation measures are also deployed across the river indus right counting how much money actually went in and where is the accountability and where is the audit trail and all for me that's just 5% or 2% of the conversation the problem is much much bigger than that and the questions that are being asked are being asked by the wrong people as pakistan and the floods fade out of the international news cycle it's easy to lose sight of the scale and the complexity of the challenge it faces in the months to come and also in the long term as climate impacts multiply across this region These floods have caused unprecedented damage across the country, displaced populations, killed people and livestock, destroyed homes and infrastructure, adversely affected already vulnerable populations, and created knock-on effects for education, health, security, economy, agriculture, and so much more. The outpouring of global grief is appreciated, but it does not bridge the financial gap needed to make up for the damages. 
nor does it address the question of global accountability, which often gets mired in distracting conversations about where current aid is going. This is to say nothing of the severe economic crisis Pakistan was already experiencing and how this will affect its debt liabilities and has already led to conversations about sovereign debt relief, restructuring, and forgiveness. Unless the global north dramatically alters its carbon footprint, climate vulnerable countries like Pakistan will continue to drown. But Pakistan is not an island, in the literal or figurative sense. It is part of a climate-unfriendly global system, and the aid, investment, and remittances it receives is not carbon-neutral money. In an integrated global system, the necessary changes will have downstream effects for everyone, including the way countries develop. But the risk of changing nothing is even greater, not just for Pakistan, but for the world. There are many reasons for countries like the United States and China to help Pakistan, including principles of justice and collective responsibility. But the most compelling one is that climate change presents a shared existential crisis. Today, Pakistan is suffering. Tomorrow, it will be the world. But the world is already experiencing donor fatigue, and especially the war in Ukraine and the humanitarian disasters in places like Afghanistan, Yemen, and Syria have contributed to it. And aid is a political and a geopolitical issue. We have already seen global priorities in another major global event, namely the pandemic and the subsequent vaccine rollout across the world. While some money has been pledged to Pakistan after the floods, and some of it has come from the US, the scale of the problem is so much bigger. But as Adam said, climate change is bigger than that still. The world cannot view Pakistan's current crisis outside of climate change and the floods right now. No matter which side you land on, the global conversations on accountability, green energy, and resilience need to evolve and be more grounded in this region's realities. For this episode of The Audit, I'm Zeeshan Salahuddin. And I'm Adam Weinstein. And I hope you will join us for the next episode as we continue to unpack the intricacies of the Pakistan-US relationship. If you have feedback and thoughts on this episode, please do share them on social media or at info at As always, we thank all the guests who appeared on this episode and hope you benefited from their insights and experience. The audit is produced by Tabad Lab Center for Regional and Global Connectivity. Episodes featuring Adam Weinstein are produced in collaboration with the Quincy Institute. This episode was edited and produced by Sarah Khan. Additional production and research assistance from Same Noor, Maryam Mirza, and Kashif Nadeem. Executive production by Shahab Siddiqui and Zishan Salahuddin. Music by Emmett Fenn. Season 1 of The Audit is made possible with a generous grant from the Holling Center for International Dialogue. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe for more.